Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Storytelling inspired by adventure. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Hall. I'm delighted to be joined today by professional skier, writer and producer, uh, Natalie Siegel, joining us all the way from Revelstoke. How are you doing, Matt? Good. I've got my coffee, so less great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, how's, how's the winter season gone for you? It's obviously the end of the winter now. How's, uh, how do you, you look back upon the season that's just been? Uh, it was a great winter here in Revelstoke. We had unprecedented amount of unprecedented amounts of snow um there's still about a meter of snow in my backyard um and a lot of snow in the mountains but just because of sort of uh social distancing and other things they're not really skiing but the start of the season was amazing um december and january were just all powder um and same moving into february was still going um but unfortunately i injured myself in mid-february so i've sort of been on a pretty mellow program for the last two months and uh, yeah, so on the road to recovery now. Yeah, yeah. I had knee surgery in at the beginning of March, just a meniscus uh, cleanup, and so yeah, I'm I'm back on it, but I won't be skiing probably until next winter. So I'm just gonna have to mountain bike all summer. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we initially got connected through uh, your film Finding the Line, which we were delighted to screen the UK premiere of at our second annual Four Seasons Film Festival last year. Um, and uh, the film's something that I want to come on to and talk about. But just in terms of skiing um, and, and your background in that, you know, being, being a career, when did it all start for you? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, I think it was, there was not one moment. It was really progressive. I skied moguls all my, well, no, I competed as sort of just an amateur athlete uh, under 18. I sort of raced, I skied moguls. Um, I traveled a little bit with that, but nothing too much. Um, and then I moved to Chamonix when I was 21. I, I took a gap year from university. I was studying painting, um, and fine arts. And, um, I saw a different style of skiing that I'd never seen before because I'd grown up in some pretty small mountains in Australia. And so moving to the Alps and sort of seeing not just freeride skiing, but also backcountry skiing and big mountain skiing, I, my, my perspective just changed. And I lived with a family who in Chamonix as their au pair and I worked for them. And the mum was actually the PR, the French PR person for the Freeride World Tour. And she just sort of told me about her job and I started watching and paying attention to the Freeride World Tour. And um, that year I realised at the end of working for her for six months, I sort of said to her, I think I want to become a competitive freeride skier. What do I do first? And she gave me some random advice. And then the next year I came back and did my first competition. And so I think that was the beginning, but it was, it took me years to sort of really get into competition and do it properly. I still have to finish my degree. And I think this idea that something happens really quickly is a bit false. Like it was sort of a three or four year progress progress until I really started my career. So in terms of being involved in free ride world too, was that quite serendipitous then? Did you go to Chamonix with any, um, you know, designs to become a pro beforehand or was it just, you know, I'm going to go and enjoy Chamonix and explore the mountains. Um, uh, and, uh, or did you go to think, okay, well, there might be a possibility that I'll come out of this you know, with, a, with a route to becoming a professional athlete. Um, <laughs> I actually just was really sick of my university degree and I'd been coaching free skiing in Australia every winter. So I was sort of still skiing, but only for fun. Um, and on the weekends coaching and I wanted to go to France because I studied French and I'd spent some time in Les Arcs, um, as a, an exchange student. So I went back to visit them and with no other plans during my gap year and I, Ended up just deciding I wanted to go to Chamonix because a friend had told me it was cool. So that was about as far as I got. And I actually went and stayed in the hostel and realised I needed to get some work for a little bit. And so I went there without my skis. I met some people in the hostel and I found this job and was like, cool, I'm going to stay here for a while. And then these guys I met in the hostel took me out skiing and I 
we, we didn't even go and do anything scary, but we went up to Vermont and sort of hiked along a ridgeline and skied a cooler. And I was like, I was on 169 park skis. I had my goggles under my helmet. I was a total newbie. And I think I, they were jumping off stuff the whole way along the ridgeline and I was just following them because I like jumping because from moguls. And these guys thought I was hilarious, but I think I also gained a bit of their respect because I just kept on trying, even though I kept falling over. And I skied my first cooler and I was just like, that was so sick. Um, and so I think after that, I was just kind of hooked, but it took me a really long time to gain the skills to ski what I now ski a really long time. Like before that, I was just crashing everywhere. (laughs) And and did you have any big mountain skiing experience at all before going out to Chamonix? You know, obviously growing up in Australia, you you do have ski hills there, but had you been over to Europe or North America before as a kid growing up? Uh, no, not really. I had spent, um, I'd done two training camps actually in Silverstar in Canada. So I'd been to Canada um, with Chains training, but we stuck to moguls and we had an air site that we jumped on. And beyond, like I think I skied, we skied powder a little bit in the mornings before training, but never proper big mountain skiing, never anything, especially like in Europe. And I think I'm right in saying that your mum was involved in ski patrol as well when you were a kid. Um, yeah. Did you have much mm-hmm. of an influence on, on you taking the route that you've gone down? Um, I mean, she introduced us to skiing and was very supportive of us in the sense that if we, she never pushed us into competitions or anything like that, but if we baked her and we sort of proved to her that it's what we wanted to do, she would support us. And so I think we were really lucky in that. Um, yeah, she sort of supported our dreams, but we kind of had, she sort of just didn't give us things just willy-nilly. Like if we really proved to her we wanted to do it and put in the work, she would do her best to help us. So I was able to go on exchange to France because I wanted to organise it and go on a, a year to an outdoor ed school and things like that. Just If we were proactive, she would really try and get behind us. So I think that is really important. So before going to Chamonix, you already had the, the language as part of your, your repertoire. You could speak French and you could integrate a little bit into the town. Yep. I studied French for 12 years. And then when I decided I wanted to go to France, I took a an extra subject at school just so that I could still speak it. But I was still atrocious at speaking French. I was really bad. I remember the, I'm still in contact. Um, the the mother of the family who I looked after was still in contact and we actually interviewed her her partner, Francois Pallant. He's actually in the film as one of the guides we speak to. Um, and he's he got me my first pair of ski touring skis or ski touring setup. Um, and they gave me a lot of advice while I lived with them. I think they thought I was crazy. Anyway, um, tangent. Uh, but she told me how bad my French was, uh, when I first arrived. And even six months after working with her and sort of two years later, I came to visit her and she's like, your French is so much better. And I thought my French was great when I was working. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think working with two kids usually helps you a little bit. Yeah, I can imagine. Immersing yourself, there's nothing quite like immersing yourself in the country and the culture, is there? Uh, no. Yeah. And I think a lot of people though, when they're in Chamonix say, and I think there's a lot of places like that, that it's so international that you don't get the French side of it. But I think if you push a little bit, you instead of spend some time there, you sort of manage to slowly start speaking French. You just have to make an effort. And so you, you, you're juggling the, the job with, with skiing. Um, when was it, was there a particular turning point in the season when you realised that, okay, I'm taking the competition seriously, were you entering some some amateur local competitions to kind of get a feel for things? Or was there a, was there a defining moment when it was like, okay, right, now, this is this is what I need to do to be able to, to to get towards being on that stage of being on the free ride world tour. Oh no, it was way less organised than that. Um, I actually spent that whole first season just skiing, and then I spent the next season coaching at my home mountain. And I realised there was a free ride club in New Zealand which I went to, um, and my sister was competing in slope style, so they were kind of like sister competitions. So I was there with her for a bit and I competed and I did the qualifiers and literally crashed out of the start gate. I sort of did a one turn and double ejected out of my skis. So uh, that was great. Um, <laughs> that, that was the moment you knew that you were going to be a pro. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I skied the comp venue on one ski, so I was quite proud of that. Um, and then I, the moment maybe when I really started moving forward is I went back to Chamonix for three months before I started my final year of university. and. I made an effort to compete in sort of free ride world qualifier events. Um, but like I said, it's kind of like building blocks. Like I did those events, but I crashed in most of them. 
and I was just learning the ropes and learning how things worked and sort of working out what other people were doing and what it actually meant to be on the, the qualifying sort of circuit and what the end goal was. Um, so it took, it took me a while to work that all out. So it, I think I did a second winter in Chamonix uh, and competed and then I decided to move to America for a few years and I competed on the Free Skiing World Tour just because I realised that the mountains in Europe and especially living in Chamonix weren't the best sort of training grounds for the kind of free ride I wanted to do. So I moved to Salt Lake City and Jackson Hole. So I did two years in both of them competing and it was good to sort of change up the terrain and the style of skiing. How much is it about knowing the right people as well in terms of getting involved in the circuit? Do you have to align yourself with certain people and ski with certain people to be able to, um, I guess, enter the enter the circuit and to compete at the level that you want to be at, but also to push and develop your own skiing? I, I imagine that you've got to be putting yourself into groups of people that are pushing you and developing you um, uh, and, and, and leading you every time you go out on the hill. Um, honestly, I actually was a bit of a, not a loner, but like, I didn't have a crew like that. I think there's a lot like, uh, especially when I moved to Snowbird, um, there were, and even in France, there were free ride teams and like some of the younger athletes, like I think Leo Slemet, when I was probably 19 or 20 was in a free ride group. He's a few years younger than me and he was still in school. And I remember meeting these like kids who were training for free ride when I was already in university and just being really jealous of them because I didn't have anyone. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a mentor. And I really didn't have anyone like that until maybe the year I got onto the free ride world tour and there were other athletes who were sort of taking me under their wing. But before that, I, I called my sister for advice. Um, and I, I, I think there's maybe something to be said about finding mentorship. Um, and I think the programs now that sort of like pull athletes through the ranks and sort of have junior comps are amazing, but there was nothing like that when I was started competing. Um, and if anything, I was, I, I, I was sort of adopted by little crews of people, but like I really had to work out how to do things myself. And that was pretty challenging a lot of the time, especially being Australian and people being like, can you even ski? Anna at the time, your sister, was she, um, how much of a, an influence was she on you uh, in in pushing yourself forward in that direction? Was she already at a competitive kind of level at that stage? Because I know she, she obviously had an a Olympic experience. Was she somebody that you looked up to and thought, I want to follow in her footsteps? Or uh, was she kind of pushing you in that direction as well? Um, she, yeah, she was, so my first year in France, she was won her first sort of like international competition. So she was a few years ahead of me and she was a huge inspiration because watching her compete on an international stage sort of gave me, it's like, if you see it, you feel like you can do it. Um, she gave me a lot more confidence that it was possible to compete on an international level, even though I might've come from a slightly different background. Um, yeah. Um, so I think having her support and you sort of talking about like contacts and who you know, I think her support was really important, but I don't believe that that's how you make it as an athlete. I think I'm reading a really good book called Bounce right now and I forget, but I think it's Matthew Syed, who Syed, he's an English um, uh, writer who wrote it. And he sort of talks about where you are and what's around you and whether it's the people you play with or the challenges you're faced with, like, the sort of nurture really does come into play. And I think having the family I had were very important and the support I had, but there's also a certain point where it's like your own personal motivation. Um, yeah. So I think that's really important above having contacts. Once you're in the, the circuit, are you, are you assigned with any mentorship or is it still very much self-propelled that you've got to work the opportunities for yourselves or do you start to find that people then gravitating towards you who want to help who want to offer their services and support and and coaching and training and to ski with you and uh, uh, and provide some guidance um no there's nothing um there's nothing in the circuit that does anything like that it's sort of all from local stuff like when I was in Salt Lake City I decided I wanted to move to Jackson Hole for the next winter and I reached out to a training group who based in Jackson Hole who sort of did they travelled with the teams, but there were more dryland coaches and they, it was called Mountain Athlete. And I actually reached out to them because the Jackson Hole crew were travelling as this team and I knew how important strength and conditioning was before like moving into competition. And so I reached out to them and told them that I wanted to train with them. So sort of that was something that 
when I was in Jackson, I was sort of part of a team and it was coincidental that that was the year I qualified for the Free Ride World Tour. So I sort of did have support. There were other athletes around me, like Crystal Wright was on the tour with me and she was also from Jackson and she was a huge mentor. But um, I think it's just about finding like personal relationships you sort of cultivate and you you realise there's certain people who are really good for you and not, but it takes time. It's It's not like a a structured body like at the same time my sister was on the Olympic path and she had you know hundreds a lot of funding and coaches and physios and strength and conditioning whereas you have to be motivated to find your own support system and create it and like invest in it as well so I think it's really important but it's different now like there's a lot of teams who are coming up and Rise becoming way more popular and which is awesome because I think having a support system is so important and it actually helps you reach your potential. And from that perspective in the support system, are you having to proactively go out and find your own sponsors and, uh, and, and, you know, get yourself made to be, are you, are you, are you effectively marketing yourself at the same time as well as, as well as training and developing your skiing skills? hundred percent. Yeah. I'm yeah. I did everything myself. And how competitive is that? Because I imagine everybody else is, you know, on look in within that world is speaking to the same types of people. What were the steps that you have to take to make yourself stand out from the crowd? And especially when you're starting out and you, you maybe aren't as well known as some of the more established names who already have some podiums under their belt. Um, I never really saw it as competitive. Like I think I've always seen other athletes, even when I was competing, especially in the women's field, not I mean, it's easy to compare and make it competitive, but I always like ended up seeing it as those people, if they're succeeding, I'm going to succeed because we're all climbing the ladder together. Um, And I still see it that way, but um, you definitely had to be very clear. Like I would write proposals for sponsors and I have hundreds of old CVs just trying to show people my abilities and also like the niche that I'm marketable to, but I, I didn't really understand it fully when I was doing it. I was just, people would give me advice. I was like, how do I get a sponsor? And they're like, put all your stuff together, show them all the things that, you know, make you you and special and send it to them. But it took a really long time to, to put that together as an actual marketable product. Um, so, yeah, it was just learning by doing more than anything. I think now I think about it a lot more because I understand it and also from marketing sort of like sponsorship for films and stuff like that. Um, and Anna's got a bachelor in commerce. So sort of we worked together a lot and I learned a lot from her when we were working on the film for a few years. But as like a young athlete, I just made it up. <laughs> I have hundreds of emails to sponsors or like team managers. Uh, like I would go through periods like months at a time where I just email hundreds of brands and the more background and sort of experience and accomplishments I had, the more I started to realize that I wanted to work with brands who aligned with me versus just trying to get gear and support. So yeah. Yeah. I think authenticity is always very important, isn't it? And uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with faking it until you make it. It's uh, I think that's the path that a lot of people take. Um, But in terms of the, uh, in terms of that side of things, when, when you, um, when you're in competition, does it become then extra? Do you, is there extra pressure to perform and podium? Do you need those wins to become more self-sustaining in, in being able to get from A to B and maybe being, you know, not as reliant upon sponsors? Are you having to find yourself, you know, I, I need to set these targets and get so many podiums in order to be able to compete at this event and this event and moving forward over the course of any given winter? Mm. Um, I guess, like, I was always had my eyes on the qualifying. When I first started, I just wanted to be progressing every year. And so I was doing that. And I actually qualified for the Free Ride World Tour a lot quicker than I was expecting. I sort of had finally gotten into my groove and I won a few events. And then the tour was merged and I was sort of up there as a pretty high level qualifier. And I also won one of the main qualifying events in America. And so I think they they bumped me on. What I don't sort of really know the technical side behind it, but I, I think I won the qualifiers, so I qualified for the world tour. And at that point, my goal was just to progress. And then, obviously, getting on the tour, I wanted to stay there. And when I lost my spot, I started really counting podiums a lot more then. And actually, I think that really changed my scheme. And I don't, I think I lost, I only did well in competitions after that when I wasn't thinking about podiums. 
Um, there was a point where I wanted to win just for the money because I didn't have a lot of support and um, prize money meant that I could compete, um, meant that I could sort of do another season. And at one time my sister gave me some really good advice. It's like you can't be skiing to win or for the money, like even though you know you need that $3,000. Um, and so going into competition without a set goal is really important other than the goals of sort of like, I want to ski well, I want to hit this jump, I want to ski my line without stopping, I don't want to hesitate before my airs, you know, like I want to do this. Like you can't do it and be like, I want to beat this person or I want to win or I want to win that money. I think you need to sort of almost think a bit above that. When you were in that mindset of, okay, I need to need to get prize money and um, to fund yourself, did that take away from the love of the sport? Did that have any effect on, on your enjoyment levels at that time? Um, not then, but I think goals outside of progression of your own personal skiing, which has sort of happened after I injured myself. Um, I injured myself in like 2013 and I did three qualifying seasons after that. And the pressure to want to get back on the tour, especially the last two seasons, that my own personal pressure was really bad. Um, it was unfortunate. Like I feel like I had a pretty good competition season following my injury and I was really motivated and I sort of missed the top spot by one or two places just because I'd sort of done badly in a few competitions. Um, and I think at that point I kind of lost the love a little bit. And that was when I was like in between realising that I don't I, – I didn't want to compete anymore. I was a bit tired of it. I'd done it for like four or five years, back-to-back seasons. And I just would love skiing but wanted to do something else. But it took me a, time, a little bit of time to realise that. And I was the next few seasons competing and feeling the pressure to compete because I thought that's what my sponsors wanted, but actually really enjoying the other projects I was doing. Like I did an expedition to Greenland and going on photo shoots, sort of expeditions that were fun, exploratory and more adventurous and realizing there was like a whole world outside of competition and competition took a lot of time and money that I didn't want to give it anymore. <laughs> was that a, a kind of a clean conscious decision or did you, did you, did you battle with it for a, a while kind of post injury in terms of wanting to potentially get back into the competitive side of things or, or was it, no, I'm enjoying these expeditions. I'm enjoying a different side to skiing and okay, now I'm done. Um, yeah, it was a huge battle. I like would have these crazy seasons of like, January to March being all competition and then like having photo shoots later in the season. Um, and then, I mean, in some ways it was cool because I'd be doing a lot of travel for competitions and it was really fun. But I think that was sort of like the 2014 season, but I think in 2015 and 2016, I really wasn't loving competition and the stuff that got me excited was trips and like ski mountaineering programs. And um, it was hard to stop competing because it's instant gratification if you win. That's instant proof that you're what you say you are. Whereas I think getting into more the media side, there is a lot of grey area and you have to build your own career and that's really scary. And was that where perhaps you got a bit of an appetite for content creation and coming on to talk about finding a line in your own film, but did you gain a lot of kind of experience and was that something that you maybe decided that oh okay well, I'd like to do more of this and then maybe start doing some of your own projects mm-hmm. yeah I was really lucky to be included in um, Shades of Winter's second film Pure mm-hmm. and um, I traveled to Japan with Sandra Landsteiner and two other athletes and watching her create the film was pretty inspiring um, and I also spent prior to that like uh, I'd been on a ski mountaineering course with her and Lindsay Dyer and a few other female athletes and that really inspired me to see those two women then go on to create some of the first like all-female ski movies and they did it off their own back it wasn't sort of with a production company or they sort of created their own production companies um so that gave me I think it was working with people like them and photographers and journalists and seeing how they created their own projects and that it didn't even sort of TGR and MSP come off very passionate people creating production companies out of what they love and so seeing the behind the scenes of it and how they all worked made my mind start ticking over and I just was a gradual thing like I'd want to do a small photo shoot or I'd want to like shifting ice and changing tides was a film that I made with five other women um and we all did different parts of it and it was watching that and seeing what we could achieve by ourselves was pretty cool 
But with Finding the Line, it takes a very different narrative to a lot of tri- what we perhaps call traditional ski films. And mm-hmm. the fo- there's, 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 a, there's a real um, focus on exploring your relationship and your sister's relationship with fear uh, in very different ways and uh, in, in a very powerful and, and impactful way. How important was it for you to create something that was maybe a little bit different to, to, to what already exists within the ski film industry? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was really important to us because we realised that um, a few things about our careers are as Australian skiers and we didn't have what it took right then to put together a huge production like Shades of Winter. Um, and even though we love skiing, we kind of wanted to tell a story that was a little bit different. And I think both of us had just sort of had a lot of challenges as athletes and realised that that was an interesting story. Um, and it took us a while to realise that though. Um, and it wasn't something that happens straight away, but one of our main sort of like baseline things is like we're two middle-class white chicks, so we need to make a story that isn't just about us skiing. It has to be about something more. Um, and I think that's because we both love those stories ourselves and so we wanted to make something like that because we'd had so many books and films and documentaries that we'd watched that inspired us as athletes and so we wanted to create something of that type. And honestly, it... It was. It ended up being much better than we'd ever expected. <laughs> I, I, like I think it, we surprised ourselves. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was thanks as well. Like I think it was our brainchild, but it was thanks to the people we worked with that helped us make it come alive. So. And was it always a, was it always a case that you wanted to do something together, or did that sort of develop over time that you you, you came together on the project? Um, the, the main um, the main idea was to do something together. We actually pitched a segment to Warren Miller at first, uh, that like a sister story about us and how similar yet different we were, and how it was. It's, I guess it is kind of interesting. Like two girls from Australia, both of us spent most of our like all of our childhood there. We weren't sort of travelling overseas every season to ski. Anna did at one point when she was competing in Europe on, in moguls, but how we'd sort of grown up and ended up on an international stage competing and we were so similar and so different and we had a pretty funny vibe together. So we sort of always wanted to work together, um, but it was we pitched it more as a ski segment to start with with a little bit of personality and then when we realised no one was going to pick it up, we wanted to make our own film. So, yeah. And so when you pitched to Warren Miller, did they, did they entertain the idea? Were they interested or was it a thanks but no thanks? Um, I think we were only at the very beginning of it and we did it through um, one of their contacts in Australia. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it didn't really go, it didn't ever have legs. We we put it forward and that's about as far as it got. So. And it must feel so much more rewarding to have done it under your own steam and under your own editorial kind of control than under somebody else's. Oh, totally. Um, like, I feel like... I feel like at the time it felt a lot more safe to have done it with a other production company and given the opportunity would have like ran for it. But in retrospect now, I'm so glad we did it by ourselves because we learned so much and we really got to control the story and make it exactly how we wanted. Whereas I think m- maybe a bigger production company would have chosen some more of the like popularist styles of filmmaking or storyline. Um, so I think we got to make something really personal and really interesting because we did it by ourselves and like we were literally sitting in the editing room with the editors and just making decisions on what was going to happen next so yeah I think the thing that uh, grabbed me as a viewer right from the very beginning was that this Mm. was a very human film and you know yourself as a professional skier and your sister as a professional skier uh, straight away you're talking and discussing and debating and trying to you know go for a particular line and you're hearing that discussion and you think well but almost as a viewer you're thinking well you're both professional athletes so surely this should be kind of a breeze because you don't see that side of the conversation you just see the commitment to the line and uh and the athletes kind of skiing and of course there's you know crash reels which get thrown into ski films but you don't 
often see, uh, very rarely see that discussion and conversation that goes into it. So mm. how important was it for you to sort of humanise the sport as well within the narrative of the film? I think that was actually the main aim, really. <laughs> so it's good that it came through. Um, I think that showing what happens behind the scenes of, of skiing and freeride skiing and, like, that the journey that even us developing as characters and as skiers was really important um, because I think, you know, fear was the main, and it's been a while since I've talked about this, so I might be a bit roundabout, sorry, but, you know, fear being the main focus in the film, you, you sort of don't want to show your fears. And Anna and I had this really interesting conversation in the editing room because we kept on looking for moments when we were showing our fear and, like, we were quite vulnerable on camera at times. Um but like before you drop in, you've got like your face, you've got your guard up, you've got your goggles on, you've, you know, you've got game face on and you don't want anyone, including yourself, to see your fear because you're faking it till you make it. It's like when, before you drop in. And I guess my personality is quite like I'm pretty open about things and Anna is as well to a certain degree, but she was sort of saying like before she dropped in for competitions, she was like a guard up because you had to be, you had to believe in yourself. And so you don't see that fear when at the beginning of a line or in ski movies and it's almost not because they're like emitting it it's because the athletes even don't want to show it because they need to have their body armor up to get through things sometimes so um but you know as someone standing next to the other person before or after a line you sort of realize that there's a lot more going on and I think that what's going on is so interesting especially because what happens in skiing and risk mitigation and all of that is so similar to life and all of the challenges we face. And that's when we started talking about it, that's what got us really excited and passionate. And so um, that was the main aim of the film, especially by the time we got to the editing stages of the film, was having that conversation and trying to show it. And so we really had to work hard and finding the, the clips where you could see it. And there weren't that many. Um, and there's these funny moments when I, I know Anna was afraid and I can see her face, but you just can't see anything because she's got her goggles on. And I'm like, her, her little lips go, <laughs> and you sort of know the other person's afraid. Um, and so having to find the interviews that sort of coupled with the shots and, and like, I guess I'm good at remembering footage because whenever we were looking for shots, I sat with the editor to try and find them. And Anna and I were sitting in the back doing that so often being like, oh, what about this shot? What about that moment? And we'd go there and be like, oh, I was like, I had my goggles on and I didn't want anyone to see that I was afraid, even though we're making a film about fear. So it was, it was an interesting process to sort of recognise how we like really shut down. Anyway, when, you, when you talk about, yeah, because it's quite hard. Uh, working as a former ski instructor myself, I remember the mm. first thing that I ever got taught when I was doing my, my level one course out in Canada was uh, I got told off for wearing my goggles because mm. you couldn't, they couldn't see your eyes. And you, you said, you know, 90% of communication or whatever the statistic is, is through body language. And so much of that is through the eyes. So I can imagine that, that um, uh, was that something that changed? In, did you realise that partway through the filmmaking where it was like, oh, okay, we're going to put the, the goggles up to be able to get more expression here? Um, no, I think it, unfortunately it took us a, like we had so much going on, like we sort of missed some of that. We missed some pretty important moments on GoPro, like POV cameras and things like that, just because they kind of weren't there. But we managed to salvage it um, in the in the end. But, yeah, it was something we realised more afterwards. But it's funny you say that because I remember this one film edit I watched of a skier in Alaska who was skiing beautifully and a guy who was staying at my house at the time, who's sort of like a intermediate skier, was like, oh, they just look superhuman. And maybe that's something to do with it is that when people are doing sports where they are sort of really closed up, they seem so much less human. So it's almost is harder to relate with it. So I guess cracking down that there, like that mould was important in our film without getting too deep. Yeah. And I think one, one of the lines that you say um, is that, the moment that you feel fear, you freeze. Is mm. that something which became more apparent after your knee injury? Did you feel that, or did you have that before? Is it something that you've always had? Mm. I think it was after that specific injury, but also maybe a few other things where, and I mean, 
without going into it too deeply, I just think both age and even sometimes gender and some other things play into account. Like I think I always was more a little bit more analytical sounds wrong because it's not that Anna isn't analytical, but like I think she just like shuts her mind down. Like she makes a conscious choice with tunnel vision. Even when we were younger, we would, there was like a jump that the freestyle team would build and you'd go and hit it and, and jump and do tricks at night under lights and all like the kids would come and watch it. And I remember doing it and wanting to do harder tricks, but never wanting to push myself to a certain level because that was the comfort zone. And I think Anna was much better pushing outside of the comfort zone. And I think that mm-hmm. I was always a little bit more cautious. So, but the freezing and like becoming cautious more quickly, I think happened after an injury and like, being able to push yourself past that is a really important moment, especially if you're wanting to um, keep on skiing at a high level in free ride, like, or anything. It's almost like scar tissue. Like you need to push against it to break it down because otherwise it's going to form and it's going to be really hard to move past that. So like scar tissue in your knee, if you don't do exercise and actually push yourself and challenge yourself, breaking down, that those fears that have built up as a result of especially an acute accident I think it's really important and I mean like I'm not a psychologist by any means but just even some friends around me I I watch them with injuries specifically and seeing how they sort of baby it and realizing that like because of people around me I realized that it was important to push past and so at one point I had to stop my brain thinking and I had to like fully do an anna and be like I have to stop thinking if I want to do this and even when I was doing backflips and everything like that in the film, like I would stop thinking and just be like, these are the motions and that's all I'm thinking about. Um, so I think the freezing started happening um, after the knee injury, but I always had it. And it was just part of the more cautious side of me. From that switching off side of things and from, uh, you know, being uh, acknowledging it within yourself, and mm. acknowledging it as being you know, the story construct for the film, did you find the mm. filmmaking process quite cathartic and did it help you or change in any way your relationship with fear by documenting it? A hundred percent, yeah. And even while making the film, it made me realise like moments when I would get afraid, would become afraid um, and I would stop and that sort of moment of fear clicking in and realising that fear would make me sort of fear is like almost an irrational thing and your brain it shuts down so stopping myself and breathing and turning my brain back on and trying to become rational about it and being like why am I afraid of this I'm afraid of this because I'm aware of the landing go and look at the landing the landing looks fine is the landing okay you know like and so during the film I actually was pushing like trying to push myself and like when we were in BC especially like realizing that landing in powder meant that you could kind of crash pretty hard and not hurt yourself was really important and then going to Chamonix and being like those moments when you're worried are important because these are no fall zones and so like it was really interesting to like exercise a bit of control over fear and listen to it and then not listen to it and when we got to Alaska I struggled a little bit more because I was really out of my comfort zone because I'd never been there and it was just such different terrain and I wish I'd pushed myself a little harder. But we didn't have the greatest conditions, so it was kind of hard to really go full throttle. Just on the locations, how much of it, it seemed and it felt that your relationships uh, or the relationship with your sister would maybe change in different types of terrain, that one of you would perhaps take the lead in certain types of terrain and uh, obviously in BC, that's Anna's playground, and then in Chamonix, that was uh, your world. How... Mm conscious of a decision were the locations that you chose to go to in exploring your own relationship with uh, with Anna as part of that that story um like 100% conscious like we did everything for that reason um Alaska I think I feel like Anna had a stronger connection to Alaska but in the end I felt just as connected like it's sort of this mecca of both styles like being playful pushing yourself but also understanding the risks so yeah after a lot of conversation and like writing the story we narrowed down those places as well because one of us had 
more influence and a stronger background and we'd be nurturing the other one both physically because we live there and mentally because it was like our comfort zone so yeah Chamonix 100 percent is much more my comfort zone it was an interesting thing though because I injured myself I really needed a lot of support and so Anna really had to step up in that area and she killed it like she went out and skied lines with Bjarne just by pure will without me because she was like I want to go and do this so that was pretty amazing and uh, Bjarne um for those who don't know he was the director of the, mm-hmm. the film um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and how how um, how much has your relationship with your sister changed over the course of the filmmaking process as well? Um, we had a lot of ups and downs, but if anything, just we're super close now. Um, and I think we both realised following the film, making the film, how important it was to have a partner in crime who is got the same, I don't know, like, is committed to the work you're doing. And I don't know if I've found as, like I haven't had another partner like that since working with Anna as as in terms of like a a producer um, or another athlete who wanted to work as much on a film as I do. Like it was sometimes I I would be more motivated and vice versa, but like one of us was always on and would be like, get to work. And we'd always respond like, yep, picking up my stuff. I'm getting this done. Whereas I've worked since then on with other in other relationships and they haven't been anywhere near as efficient because I just knew I could rely on her. Um and I knew she'd put in 110%. So I think that was pretty important and like built a really good trust between us. Yeah. And did you have clear defined roles that you gave yourselves prior to the process taking place where you took ownership over certain sections or is it a bit more fluid than that? Um Yes and no. There was times when, like, we took ownership over certain things. Like, uh, for instance, I think I did a lot of music um, rights and things like that, whereas Anna was much more savvy on sponsorship and I've got a design background. So I did all this sort of art and design and pictures. And But we kind of worked together on things and I think we both had to learn each other's skills in order to take the workload off each other. So, yeah, we learned a lot and learned a lot about, like, teamwork and working together and that you can't do everything and you have to sort of share your skills with your partners so that you can work together. But sometimes, like, for especially, like, it just became easier for one of us to do certain things. So, yeah. And, and having Vianney <laughs> on board as well, um, it's obviously your film, this is your passion project for both of you. Mm. Did you find that easy or difficult to kind of give over some of the control um, to a director who obviously will have his own influences on, you know, what you should be doing and maybe setting up different shots and maybe different ways to which you envisage. How did that relationship and dynamic work? Was it, was it something that um, uh, you, you, you found ultimately, you know, helpful or did it cause some tension during the, the, the production process? Um, during filming, I think we were so lucky to have him because neither Anna nor I had been really worked out outside of just being the athletes like and on photo shoots like I could see lines and I love shooting with photographers and doing really artsy things because that's part of my background but we had no experience in filmmaking so Bjarne just really brought it all and if anything we almost backed off or like I learned to back off and let him make the calls um and so maybe prior to a day out or like during the day would be like this is what we want to do as athletes but we kind of let him take on most as much as possible and I, I don't know what he'd say to that but like especially as time went on like backing off and letting him decide what we needed to shoot um and we'd sort of be quite strongly opinionated maybe about the interviews we wanted to do but we talked about them as a team um so yeah he um in post-production I think it was a little harder because we were editing from isolation and at one point we changed editors and not isolation, but like distance. Um, and I think that there were some times when what how we envisaged the film changed. Um, and so that was a harder process. And I would really recommend anyone who's editing a film to spend time with their sort of post-production team because you kind of have to be there. Um, yeah, so there was definitely challenges in post-production. But in production, like, Bjarne was the filmmaker and he did an amazing job. 
Uh, I think I didn't, as, a, as, a, as a viewer, and uh, yeah, it certainly went down incredibly well with our audience over here in London. So uh, I think you, you all pulled together as a team, did a, a stunning job. It's an incredible film, which mm. um, is available to view now on Red Bull TV for anybody yep. um, who wants to check it out. Finding the Line, free to view, Red Bull TV. Um, and something that you touched on there with, with the role that you had to play within music was something that I want to ask you about because kind of a, a staple with any ski film is the soundtrack. Um, mm. How important or, or was it to, to you or how, and how did you go about selecting songs for, uh, for, the, for the film? Um, and, and, and could you maybe yeah, talk a little bit about kind of that process? Mm-hmm, of course. Um, so music was a little bit of an afterthought for us in some ways. And I think Bjarne, who had had more experience editing and making films, was sort of saying he wanted, he was like, oh, we can do a lot of, um, what's the word? Uh, like like uh, composed music or maybe pay a composer. And so that was sort of our plan for quite a while is to pay a composer or to do certain things with music. And um, we were also looking for some bigger tracks to use in the action parts. And so we had a playlist of songs that we were really into. And um, right after we finished filming, I started looking into how to license music. And it became, like, way more difficult than I realised. First of all, because you have to find the people who own the licences and then you need to speak to two or three different people minimum just to have the rights. And then they all have to agree, but they can't all be on the same, like, uh, email. You can't just all be like, this is what we have. You have to send separate emails to everyone because they're different people being represented by different agencies. And so, like, one track had, like, six different agents I had to speak to. And they would, you sort of have to plead your case separately to all of them. And so we've sort of wanted a Lord track and a Florence and the Machine track and realised it was going to cost us like $50,000 and then starting to learn like what in perpetuity was. And I'd be on the phone to sort of like universal music and be like, can you explain what that actually is? And I'd be sort of researching it and writing these horribly uneducated emails to people who I bet would get them in their inboxes just being like, oh, why is this person wasting my time? But after a while, we started building up a really good relationship with certain agencies. So it ended up the same person would hold the rights to several of the tracks we wanted. And so we went about music by, after a while, realising that we needed to find less popular music but still amazing music. We used an Australian radio station called Triple J and they have this really good um, online sort of series of unearthed artists from Australia and we sort of picked out some music from them and contacted them. And some of them actually even let us use their music for free. Um, others we worked through like the, like Australian, uh, agencies or production agencies. Um, but we did choose one or two tracks. Um, the first iteration of the film, which is 58 minutes long, which we showed live has these beautiful French songs from Camille and we had to change them. And also the last track, because when we recut the film for Red Bull, it had to be 52 minutes long. And we had to relicense the music and we ended up asking some Australian artists to compose specific music to sort of fit in those areas because we couldn't find anything that fit to our budget. Um, so, yeah, it was the music was a huge process. Um, and on top of that, we had to go to um, stock music channels to sort of find all the backing tracks for things because we decided not to have a composer. So I think having a music plan before starting to make a film is, like, so key because I've spoken to other filmmakers about licensing music and they almost if they're making just like a one song edit they'll license the music before they start making the film um and I would now maybe start with that or like what during production be like finding the music I want to use because you've got like Artlist and Mama Set and a few other things but the tracks get used a lot and trying to find something original that really speaks to your film is hard and so even making the trailer finding music for that was Tricky and expensive. <laughs> so that whole end-to-end process from kind of concept to finishing and uh, distribution, how long did the whole process take? Um, September 2015 and we sold the film and it went online September 2019. Uh, that's quite a, a long period of time. I think probably most people don't necessarily... Uh, kind of realise when they when they're sitting there watching watching a piece of content how how much work can go into it is it is it giving you uh, a taste to do more is it is it something that you would do again or is it kind of put you off 
um, creating your own um, content in, in, on such a you know a big scale because it is a it is a feature length film. Um, uh, where where do you stand kind of on on things now from you know producing another another of your own films? Um, it definitely gave me an appetite for it, but it taught me a lot of things about having budget before you start, really planning the budget, and I think it took us a part of our development was the story um recognizing when you're ready like we sort of shot over two years in the end because of budgeting issues and everything like that um but also just like being aware that it takes time like I've got a film in the works right now that we were meant to go and shoot I was meant to be shooting on it right now and this is the second year it's been delayed and it's just one of those things that you just have to wait um and be okay about waiting for because if it's meant to work and be sort of be the best it can be it just takes time and you have to put in the effort to make it work and sometimes delays are good for development and things like that um yeah so I definitely still want to do them I don't know about feature length though I think especially just with documentaries I think we're really lucky with how long our film was that we had enough action for the length of it but I would almost make it like I wouldn't do much above 30 minutes right now um I'd almost prefer to do short projects until there was a project that was really worth it. Uh, I know you know you say on your website that you you know got a passion in particular for working on female driven content, which of course mm. finding the line is, although it's not necessarily, you know, the fact that you're an Anna of Sisters is is isn't it's not necessarily, you know, uh, the headline of the film by any means. It's just, you know, it's, like it's humanizing the sport and that discussion with fear. But how important is it for you in, in the work that you're doing now to um kind of push the 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 female perspective in skiing more or in, in, in the wider context of, of the projects that you're working on? Um, I just think it's like an underlying thing that I'm always passionate about. It always comes back to it, but it's not something that needs to always be highlighted, but it is like, I think that's what real equality is. It's not that it's a male or a female. It's just that there is room and space for female content. And I think it's wanted, but I don't know if there's, it's slowly becoming room for it but you still have to fight for a certain number of women or female filmmakers to be in a space it, they're just it's it's not equal yet so I think that's why making a point that you want female content out there or female perspective whether it's the women who are in front of the camera or behind the camera um that's that's really important to me just because it's different and it's not to say one like male content is better than female content it's just different and having space for everything because everyone's, you know, everyone's different and sees things differently and is interested in different things. And um, so, yeah, I think I think it's really important, but I also don't want to only do all female things because the perspective of different, all genders is really important. So, yeah, it's, it's just like a, it's like underlying. <laughs> and is there anything currently in the works that's, uh, that you're developing at the moment? Yep, um, I'm working on a documentary to it's sort of a mountain culture history documentary about Armenia and a good friend of mine whose family's from Armenia. And so we went to go there this year and do a, a short film about skiing there and climbing some mountains there. And that's just been delayed until next year. Um, and then there's maybe a few more projects closer to home that's sort of more environmentally focused, just about the sort of really beautiful mountains and like. Rain, um, interior rainforest in round Revelstoke um, but that one's a little bit mm, less organized whereas the Armenian project is like ready to pull the pull the or well, start the ignition on I guess yeah and, uh, how important do you think the content creation side of the sport is now um, because it's you know there is this dissemination of the media where people can um, create their own content, don't necessarily need to, you know, go down that traditional ski movie route that you initially looked at with Warren Miller or you mentioned sort of MSP and, and Tetel Gravity there. How um, how much of a, I guess, of a, of a culture shift is there in terms of being that professional athlete but connected with content? So um, do you think that competition is, is an important of a, um, an ingredient as it has been now or do you think it's more about just getting um, your your film seen, your your your, your images seen, um, your stories out there. If you know you're filming with the crew, is that all you need to you know be be a pro skier now? What 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 sort of differences have you noticed, kind of 
I guess, in that transition that you've been on yourself in terms of what's happening with the next wave of, of pro athletes coming into the sport? Big question. <laughs> I think it just varies. I think that there's a lot of different types of athletes and everyone has their strengths um, and weaknesses and also different passions. Like I'm really interested not just in content creation, but in creating stories. Um, I like not, I'm not as focused on making like quick content that is digested really quickly and then forgotten about. Um, and it's not because I don't like that kind of content. I love it. I think it's great and it's got a place, but just for me, like I'm really passionate about telling stories. And so that's my focus, but there's other athletes who have different focus, might be more action focused or like, showing a progression that's like on a side of a sport that doesn't have a production company, you know, like um, what's it called? The, like the Finnish um, crew of skiers um, or, or urban jibbers and like have been making their own content for ages and sort of like in the last few years have been much more recognised. But I think you just have to go and do your thing. And if you're trying to become famous by adhering to like what is now, You'll get there, but I think it's way more interesting when you're yourself and you just follow your own path because sooner or later people are going to be stoked on that um, if you're really that passionate and you're really making something and putting effort and time into it. But that's just me personally. You've moved around a bit. You mentioned, you know, you've spent time in um, Chamonix, um, Treblecombe and Salt Lake City. You're now in Revelstoke. What mm-hmm. is it that makes any particular destination your mountain? Um, uh, what key ingredients do you need to have in order to, you know, to, to, to find find your feet somewhere, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a ski pro? I guess it really depends <laughs> on the person. Um, I find the terrain and the mountain community probably the biggest draw, usually, like sort of the motivation in the community and like the access to mountain stuff and it changed depending on what my goals were. Um, uh, I think that uh, living in Europe for me had some really amazing pros, but I realised that if I wanted to continue my career, um, I just realised that North America would maybe be a better place for me with more opportunity um, just based on my experience. And so moving here, it was a really good move. Um, but yeah, everywhere it just depended, but it was really to do with like access to the mountain and community. Usually like I wanted to live somewhere where I knew I was moving in with like-minded people and every mountain community was slightly different and had it's like the things I loved and things I disliked. And yeah, I, it took a little bit of time to decide to move to Canada and decide where in Canada I wanted to live, but I'm really glad I moved to Revelstoke because it's sort of got a bit of everything. It's like a big town in terms of tourism. It gets really busy. It's got a lot going on in the winter and even the summer, but then it's also like a really nice small town and a really beautiful community. So I think that's why I moved here in the end. And so does it feel like home now or do you still have kind of itchy feet to maybe go explore some new destinations and, uh, uh, and live in some new mountain areas? Uh, or, or is mm. Revelstoke, you know, a home for... Uh, for 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 a long, bit of a longer period of time than maybe some of the other places that you've you've been been through on your travels. Yeah, I mean, I think it is definitely home a hundred percent. I usually I wasn't trying to always travel so much. It was just difficult because I couldn't live in places for visa reasons. Um, whereas I've like made a concerted effort here to live in Canada and try and stay here and have get my permanent residency and sort of make a like home here. Um, I was trying to do the same thing in Canada, I mean in Chamonix, um, but the visa process was just a lot more difficult and because of the transient nature of the valley, I after a while realised that it maybe wasn't the place for me. Um, uh, And for different reasons, it was a lot further away from my family. So I think that sort of starts coming into play, especially as you're getting older and making a home, you're like, it's a 30-hour plane trip for my family to come visit me. That's an issue, whereas it's sort of 15 hours from Australia to Canada. The final question I want to ask you is how are your um, glass blowing skills developing? Oh, I haven't been back yet. So not great. I just may be visualising it a lot. But um, I'm really excited about trying to get back there once uh, sort of social distancing's over and we can start trying it again. But it's really cool. Actually, it's so amazing the glass blowing studio in the Big Eddy and a few other places in town that do stuff like that in Revelstoke. Like it's like it's a big small town. It's got so much to offer, um, but it's actually a pretty small town. So 
I'm excited about summer kicking off again whenever it happens and getting yeah. to really do those things again. Well, fingers crossed we'll come, come through the other side of this current situation sooner rather than later. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for having the time to chat, Nat. I really appreciate it. And um, if people listening and watching want to um, find out more, where can they, where can they find you? Um, yeah, so you can find me on my website, nataliesegel.com or on Instagram at Nat Siegel, Nat underscore Siegel. Um, and yeah, usually most of all of my other things are sort of linked through there. You can send me an email or a message and just say hi. Brilliant. Thanks again, Nat. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Cameron. Have a great day.